All right, so Gospel of Mark. We're going to start off with a, a little bit of review. Last week, we talked about the, the first several verses of the Gospel of Mark. We were looking at John the Baptist. And um, before we, we got there, we looked at uh, the interesting way in which Mark started off his Gospel. I just want to ask you guys, what is unique about Mark's Gospel and how he begins his Gospel as compared to Matthew, Luke, and John? What's different about Mark's Gospel? Yeah, he just flat skips over the birth, right? Yep. Yeah, he doesn't start with his birth. He doesn't start within the beginning. Um, but he just says, uh, this is the beginning of the gospel of who? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Uh, we talked about how that's his, his thesis statement and how he's really pushing and presenting that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. We looked at uh, Mark 8:29. that's where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then later on at the end of the book, um, both bookends, the beginning, the middle, and the end, in 1539, that's when the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. Um, so all throughout, he's kind of dropping hints that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then he backs up that thesis statement with Scripture. We went back and we looked at Malachi and at Isaiah and how... Uh, the the forebearer, the the forerunner, was presented in the Old Testament. That John's coming was prophesied, and then he uh, came to identify Christ, to um, to to highlight Christ, that he may increase and John himself may decrease. And then um, he identifies him as the the central, as being central to the singular gospel. Remember, we talked about how that word gospel was used in the, the Greco-Roman world and how uh, it was often, well, every time that it was used in the Greco-Roman world, it was used in a, a sense. And it was used to introduce a king. But Mark says, no, there's only one king. There's one gospel, and he is here. This is the true king, the true son of God, and this is his one singular gospel. All throughout the New Testament, gospel, euangelion, is only found in the singular, which is pretty cool, especially when it's the opposite in the the Greco-Roman society. So he is the, the one true God who has come to save his people from their sin. That is the, the thesis statement of Mark. And what are some of the things that we learned about the, the person and ministry of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer? What are some things that we picked up on last week that we looked at? We took some, some notes from Mark 1, the first eight verses or so, and then we also jumped over to Luke, and we were looking in in Luke 3. You guys remember any of the stuff that we learned about John the baptizer? He is a hillbilly. boy. Good job. Amen. Good. Those are great characteristics to have paired together, right? Bold, humble hillbilly. Uh, that's John the Baptist for you. All right, let's just look at some of the things that we, we went over last week. So the person of John he was out in the wilderness. He was prophesied by Isaiah. He was crying in the wilderness. Uh, he wore camel's hair and a leather belt. He ate locusts and wild honey. And Amy, as he pointed out, he is both humble and bold. Again, a great pairing of qualities. That He didn't think highly of himself, but he didn't think too lowly of himself to speak up and speak the truth and to do so in love. And then his ministry, he preached repentance, a baptism of repentance. 
uh, his job was really to make straight the pass of Christ. That was who he was. He was the, the forerunner to point people to Jesus. He baptized in the Jordan. He condemns easy believism. And he points people to Jesus. And then uh, this is really part of what makes him bold, that he rebukes false teachers and he preaches judgment. There are two things that are, are difficult to do, but John didn't seem to um, at least portray any difficulty in his rebuking of these false teachers and his preaching of judgment, saying that judgment is, is at hand, that the root of the axe is, or the axe is at the root of the tree. All right. And then uh, we talked about repentance. What is repentance? And what is repentance not? This is a really important question, a, a central question, really, to, to Christianity. Uh, I feel like we kind of ended a little bit more abruptly than I would have liked to. But what do you guys remember about what repentance is and what repentance is not? Good. Perfect. And what does that change of mind lead to? Amen. Good. So it's a, a change of mind, and that will have results, not only in our mind, in our ability to, to grasp and to believe and to put our faith and our trust in Christ, um, but also it will have outward effects. Um, Matthew 7 says that every good tree will bear good fruit. Um, so it's a change of mind that results in a change of action, but um, it isn't equivalent with just a, a change of action. It doesn't equate to uh, not sinning, right? A lot of people have that misconception that to repent means to stop sinning. Well, if we have that understanding, then we are saved by our works. That's a, a works righteousness gospel there, and we need to make that firm distinction with repentance. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that repentance, it will bear fruit. Good. Any other thoughts or questions on repentance? Again, we ended rather abruptly. And, uh, we talked about this a little bit on, on Wednesday as well. So there's a, a lot there, and I don't want to leave any... Uh, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, if righteousness come through the law, then Christ died for nothing, right? Uh, we're saved not by works, but by his grace. Good. What about the, the article that I gave out uh, at the end of the class, that Got Questions article? You guys ever use that, that website? That's a really good resource, Got Questions. Uh, if you guys have any questions from that, we can definitely go over that. And I still have some articles if anybody needs another article. But uh, go through that, and hopefully that will address the, the bulk of what we may have missed last week on repentance. I just remember wrapping up a little bit more quickly than I had hoped to. All right. Um, Thank you. 
Yeah. What that that is good news, right? That is not gospel. Yes. Which it is, but <laughs> for a different reason altogether. All right. Yes, yeah, Amy. Uh-huh. And then Christ gets condemned because he drinks and he doesn't live in that simplicity. Yeah, they call him a glutton and a drunkard. Honors, yeah, well, it's just, um, you know, they're gonna, it's not our actions that save us. It's not, Christ is perfect, but John's not condemned or even risen up because of his choices to not drink or to, does that make sense? Yeah, so... The, the, God uses all things good for his purposes and there's not a cookie-cutter way to go about it. Absolutely. Good. Yeah, unity without uniformity, right? Yeah. That there is diversity within God's church and even before his church, um, John the Baptist being the, the last of the Old Testament apostles, and, um, there's, he uses different people in, in different ways. We're going to talk about that a little bit today in our devotional. So, um, that's one of the beauties of the church for sure, that we're not all cookie-cutter Christians. Good. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was listening to Bodhi Bauckham this week, and he was talking about the difference between race and... Um, oh, I forget which word he used, but he just doesn't like that, that term of races. Yes, I think it was ethnicities. Um, and talking about how um, there is this whole new wave, this whole new kind of concept of people saying, well, I, I don't see color and um, just pretending like color doesn't exist. And he says, no, color is beautiful and color is diverse. And God made people with different colors, different skin tones and different colors of eyes and a number of different ways. And that's beautiful. And we should embrace that without saying that uh, those things separate us or divide us. We are all children of God. We are made in the image of God. Um, but we need to uh, realize the, the beauty within the diversity of God's creation, both within the church and within nature. Um, it's definitely a beautiful thing. All right. Well, good. Uh, if you guys do have any thoughts or questions throughout, um, definitely feel free to, to share them. I feel like last week was a little bit quiet, and that's okay. I know that sometimes um, there are different modes and, and styles of teaching, and I don't want to uh, dominate the class, but want to learn together with you. And uh, just please feel free to engage and to interject any uh, comments or, or questions. Um, remember that the, the yellow references that I put on here are ones that I want us to turn to together, and I want to encourage you guys to be bold and brave and to get involved and uh, to read those ones aloud. It's good to have more voices than just mine, for sure. So, all right, uh, let's look at starting a gospel. We touched on this a little bit, but looking at how these different authors introduce their gospels, remembering that each different author has um, a different audience that they're writing to, a different purpose with which they're writing, different angles in mind. We see that Matthew, when he starts his gospel, he does start with the birth of Christ. First, he gives his genealogy. Remember, he's 
writing to the Jews. So, of course, he goes back to Abraham, starts his genealogy from Abraham, shows how Jesus is king, and then he starts with his birth, which is, a, again, a, a perfectly normal place to begin. And Luke essentially does the same thing. He starts off, first of all, by expressing his intentions and saying, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to uh, go and get these, these reports. I've collected these eyewitness testimonies, and I'm going to send them to you, most excellent Theophilus. And in very detailed fashion, he chronologically tells the, the story of the birth of John, and then the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, and the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth, and then he gets to the birth of Jesus. And that's really the beginning of his gospel. And John, he goes all the way back to the beginning, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. But he does, um, he also focuses on the, the baptism of John. He jumps over the birth of, of Jesus, and he talks about the, the witness of John the Baptist, and then Jesus' baptism, and then he jumps into the, the public ministry of Jesus. And that's not too far off from what Mark, the author of the gospel we're going through, does. He starts off with this prophecy about John the Baptist in verses 2 and 3, and then the ministry of John, and then the baptism of Jesus before he gets into the preaching of the gospel. And so all four of the authors uh, include the baptism of Jesus, and they seem to view it as an inauguration of sorts into his public ministry, that this is uh, the beginning of the gospel, so to speak. That's the word that or the phrasing that Mark uses at the beginning of his gospel. And he jumps and he points to the baptism of Jesus. This is when he steps into the, the public view. This is when his ministry is beginning. Uh, 30 years after his birth, uh, he and John just kind of jump over and go straight to his baptism. So looking at the, the baptism of Jesus, uh, we only have three verses on Mark that cover the baptism of Jesus. Uh, verses 9, 10, and 11, and then he he moves on. But that's how Mark rolls, right? That's his MO, that he moves from one thing to the next, immediately, immediately, immediately. It's the uh, gospel of immediacy to try to make a point to get to the end. He's try driving to the cross and wanting to get to the cross and showing how uh, Jesus' ministry works its way to that point. But um, there are other, like I said before, there are other cross-references in different gospels that we can look to to uh, glean some more information. But before we do that, let me ask you, what are the, the steps of Bible study? We went over this last week. What are the basic steps to, to Bible study? Observation. Good. Uh, interpretation. And I think like either application or principalization. Yeah, we can throw principalization in there, especially if it's uh, something that's written to a group that's not to us, like to the, the Israelites, we need to principalize that and ask ourselves, okay, well, how can we borrow this principle that's written to a different people, a different group, a different setting altogether, and then apply that to our lives? So good, observation, interpretation, principalization, and then application. So um, applying that to these three verses in Mark, let's go ahead and look and see what we can glean about the, the birth not the birth, the baptism of Jesus. Again, Mark skips over the birth. So just what are the facts that we see as we read through here? I'll read through here, and then uh, let's see what we can glean from this. So starting in verse 9 of Mark 1, 
It says, In those days Jesus came to Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. What are some things we see in that short little three-verse paragraph? All right, he came from Nazareth. Good. What else? Remember, we're not trying to interpret or make application. We're just looking at what are the facts. He came from Nazareth. Baptized by John. Yep. In the Jordan. In the Jordan. Good. And then what happened? Came out of the water and saw the Spirit. All right. And yet he... Uh, the spirit was descending like a dove and there was a voice that came out of heaven, right? Very simple, very brief. So uh, let's take that same uh, approach in looking at Mark's account. So let's flip over. You can keep your finger in Mark if you want to. But let's flip over to Matthew 3 and see how Matthew's account compares We'll look at Matthew 3. I think we'll start in verse 13. So, let's see what we can observe in Matthew's account. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Are there any additional facts that we can glean from this account? What other observations can we make from Matthew's account? John didn't want to baptize Yeah, John's like, yeah, no way. I'm, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, right? What else? He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Yeah. John showed his humility there by not arguing with Jesus. Yes. Yeah, he accepted and embraced what, what Christ did, and he, uh, he submitted to actually do what he didn't quite understand, right? Yes. So, I forget where it's at, but um, Paul was asking some people who had believed in the repentance of John, and then he shared with them mm-hmm. the, the baptism of Christ, yeah. yeah, we're going to be looking at that here in a minute. Oh, okay. But yeah, good point. You're, you're working. That's good. All right. Looking at verse 13, we see that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, right? Except for we don't see that necessarily in verse 13. What's different about Mark, or Matthew 3.13 from Mark's account? 
he doesn't mention the, the city of Nazareth, right? Nazareth was a, a small, unknown little podunk city, right? Uh, not unlike Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, right? The smallest um, from Judea. Um, and so remember that Matthew is writing to a bunch of Jews, and they would have been familiar with Nazareth. But Mark is not writing to a bunch of Jews. He's writing to a bunch of Romans. And so he needs to point out, well, this little city of Nazareth, it's in the, the bigger region of Galilee. And um, Matthew doesn't see the need to, to mention that. Um, we also see that um, this is the, the first time that we're hearing about Jesus since Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was 12 years old. Again, we're just jumping over large swaths of, of time here, that Jesus is now 30 years old as he is uh, preparing for ministry. He's been patiently waiting, submitting to the Father. Um, he is now coming out uh, from Nazareth to some unknown point on the Jordan River. We don't know what specific point he's going to, and it's possible that he could have traveled upwards of 60 miles to get to this place where he is uh, looking to be baptized by John. He came to express purpose of being baptized by John. Uh, we see in verse 14, like you mentioned, that John didn't want to baptize him. He wasn't really having any of that. Verse 15, we see that Jesus eventually convinces him, citing a need to fulfill all righteousness. So he concedes and baptizes the Lord Christ. And then verses 16 and 17, we see Jesus' affirmation by the Holy Spirit and by the Father. Same thing that we saw back in Mark chapter 1. So, um, I think to, to better understand John's hesitancy and why he was hesitant to baptize Christ, we need to first ask ourselves a, a bigger, broader question of what is baptism? So, let me ask you guys. Uh, just right off the bat, what is baptism? You have any introductory thoughts? Well, it's explicitly called by John the baptism of repentance. Yes. So. But even broader than that, if we don't zoom in and look at John's baptism, if we just talk about baptism in general, what could we. Good, perfect. So baptism is uh, identification. That's what I want you guys to, to think. Whenever you hear or read that word baptism, I want you to automatically think identification or association with. That's what that word baptism is indicating. And so often we have a tendency to automatically think water baptism whenever we read baptism because that's our culture, that's our context. We've been to baptisms uh, out in the lobby or at the lake or whatever it may be. Uh, that's what we know, but we can't... Um, we can't take our understanding and impose that upon the text, right? That's anachronistic thinking. You guys familiar with that term? Uh, Anna means back or, or behind, and chronos is, is time. So we can't take our understanding from this current time and impose that upon the text. That's not a proper way to, to approach the text. That's not good Bible study method. So in, in John's baptism... Um, well, even before we get to, to John's baptism, we have to realize that the Bible does talk about several different kinds of baptism. So that's why we can't take our understanding and impose that upon the text. Uh, because these several different types of baptisms aren't equivalent. They don't always equate. 
So, for instance, in the, the Old Testament times, there's tradition that says that the Jews used to baptize uh, Gentile converts. That when a Gentile wanted to be a, a God-fearing man, he wanted to uh, be a part of the Jewish culture, that he would come to them and he would be baptized. He would be uh, ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed or washed. And then he would be embraced as a Jew. And um, in, in John's baptism, uh, well, actually, let's go back in, in Matthew 3. Hopefully you're, you're still there. And if we look up in 3.11, we'll see three different types of baptism mentioned in this one verse. So 3.11 says, As for me, John the Baptist speaking, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So at the, the beginning of that verse, we see John's baptism in view, that he will baptize with a baptism of repentance. And in this baptism, uh, what he is doing is he is preparing the person for the, the coming of Messiah the King. So we talked about repentance last, last week and what that means to have this change of mind that results in a change of heart. And so people would come to John, they would uh, identify with this need for repentance. They would identify with the need for a Messiah, for a Savior to come and to save them from their sins. And while uh, the, the Old Testament tradition of Gentiles being baptized into Judaism, that would be a, a normal thing for a Gentile to be baptized. In this context, remember that John was baptizing Jewish people. And that would not be normal for a Jew to say, well, I need to be baptized. I need to um, consider myself as an outsider. It would be radically different from what they were used to. They were essentially admitting that they're not any more worthy to receive the, the Messiah than a, a Gentile, right? Than an outside Gentile. They were identifying as an outsider with their, their need for a Messiah, and this requires, of course, a, a certain amount of humility to say, yes, I need a, a Savior. I am, I'm not worthy in and of myself. And that's what John was trying to identify within them. He was trying to get them to realize their, their need, um, that they are unworthy. And, of course, John demonstrates the same humility himself, saying that he is unworthy even to tie the, the sandal of Christ who is uh, a task for the, the lowliest, most menial servants. Some people say that the servants wouldn't even do that. They wouldn't touch or untie the, the sandal of their masters. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to, to do that thing that these servants don't want to do or consider themselves unworthy to do. So John was demonstrating this humility to these other people who needed to have an understanding and a grasp of that humility before they could embrace uh, true salvation. So, um, Andy, you mentioned that, that passage. That's in Acts 18. Let's go ahead and turn to Acts 18, and we'll look at that. We'll see that there is a distinction between the baptism of John and uh, believer's baptism or spirit baptism. So, Acts 18, verse 24 and 25, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, 
being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Now let's jump forward to chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It says that it happened while this man, Apollos, was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? Or identified, right? That's what we need to be thinking whenever we see that word. What were you identified with if not the Holy Spirit? And they said, We were identified with or baptized into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, identified with the Lord Jesus. And that's when they received the Holy Spirit. So there is definitely a distinction between John's baptism and uh, other baptisms. We need to keep that in mind as we continue on. Uh, John Christostom, uh, who was around the the 4th century, an early church Nicene father, anti-Nicene father, he said, uh, since the victim had not been offered, remember, or recognize that this is an uppercase V talking about Christ. That is really small up on that screen. Sorry about that. (laughs) All right, since the victim had not been offered, nor had the Holy Spirit yet descended, of what kind was this remission of sins? Fittingly, therefore, when he had said that he came preaching the baptism of repentance, he adds for the remission of sins, as if to say he persuaded them to repent of their sins so that they might more easily receive pardon through believing in Christ. For unless brought to it by repentance, they would not seek for pardon. His baptism, therefore, saved no other end than served no other end than as a preparation for belief in Christ. He did not say he baptized with water of forgiveness, but of repentance. So that was the the purpose of John's baptism, to get these people to realize and understand their need of repentance, to identify with that need of repentance, um, looking forward to the Savior and this other baptism that Paul referenced in Acts chapter 19. Any thoughts or questions on John's baptism before we move on and look at spirit baptism? Um, the religious leaders, they, we know how they reacted to Jesus, but how did they react? To, they cut off his head. thrown in jail and beheaded, but that yeah. was the religious leaders. How did, what, were they think, what do you think they were thinking? Like, repented for who's coming? Who's coming? They, they were clueless, right? And they repented yeah. Jesus so much. Yeah, we see that. Um, let's see, I'm in Matthew right now. I'm looking in, in Matthew. Um, so, verse 7. But when he saw many of the, this is John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism. So they came and they said, hey, there, there's some religious thing going on. Let's go and let's see and let's participate in that. But John said, no, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So they wanted to you know, explore it and um, check it out and see if it's something they wanted to do. You. This is for those who are truly humble. This is for those who have a, a true understanding of their need for a Savior. And you guys are, are self-righteous. You guys are high and mighty. And he told them straight up. Um, he wasn't willing to accept some kind of easy believism. He was preaching against these, these false teachers pretty, pretty blatantly. 
And after that, I'm, I, don't, I can't think of any verse to reference of their thoughts, but I can't imagine they accepted that uh, too well. I'm sure that they were a little bit upset by that. Yes. And they Yep. Yeah, they didn't want to say that it was from heaven, not because that's not what they thought, but they didn't want to uh, give that that political win to their political opponent. It was all a politically driven uh, type of reasoning. All right. Well, let's look at spirit baptism. So. Back in Matthew 3.11, uh, where it says that, where John said, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with water. Uh, this is where we see spirit baptism introduced. And we can go back even farther, and I want to actually read to you this, this verse from Ezekiel, because I think this is where this is all rooted, that we need a, a new spirit, a new heart. This is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament for the uh, the Jewish people. Ezekiel 36, 26 uh, has a context, and I really wish that we could get into it, but uh, today's not the day to do that. Just remember, it is written to Israel, and it will sound somewhat familiar to you. It says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Remember, those are God's words to his people, Israel, through his prophet uh, Ezekiel. And it's very similar to uh, Jeremiah 31, talking about the new covenant that he's going to work with the people of Israel. But also remember that uh, you and I, as, as Gentiles, we have been grafted in, right? Romans 11 talks about the, the olive tree and how we have been grafted into that tree, even though we're not natural branches. We have been grafted in. We have been given uh, opportunity to partake in this new covenant. When we take partake of communion. Um, we remember that Jesus said on um, that night in which he was betrayed, take this cup. This cup is a new covenant, which is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. That is uh, opening up that, that covenant, not only to the Jewish people, but also to, to us as well. But we can't overlook the fact that initially it was to the Jews, and they will be given a, a new heart. They will be given a heart of flesh. Their heart of stone will be taken out and uh, it's a, a beautiful truth that we can't overlook. And then um, we have these, these other passages. Could I get somebody to look up those passages in Colossians 2 and 1 Corinthians 12, please? I got Colossians. All right. And one other aspect of this having a, a new heart is that the Holy Spirit is actually indwelling the believers. He is taking up residence within the believers, not as he did in the Old Testament, like we read in Psalm 51, that he would come upon people and leave, and David prayed, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We don't have to pray that anymore because we have been baptized into this new covenant in the Holy Spirit. All right, you got that, Andy? Yeah. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. I love that passage. We are identified with him in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. We have been baptized into the, the Spirit of God. And he has taken that certificate of debts and decrees that are against us, and he has nailed it to the cross. That is the identification that we have when we are baptized into the Holy Spirit, when we are made to be children of God. This all happens at that point of belief, repentance and, and baptism and indwelling of the Holy Spirit and belief. It's all simultaneous when we have this understanding that uh, we are not worthy and we need a Savior who is outside of ourselves. And we fall on our knees in repentance and faith and we say, God, I, I need you. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Who's got that one? By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. All right. So, again, this is a, a spirit baptism that is for everybody, Jews and Greeks, uh, male and female. We're all drinking of the same spirit. Uh, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These verses aren't talking about speaking in tongues, which often, well, the context is, but not this specifically, being baptized in the Spirit. That means to be identified with Christ by His Spirit. All right, and then the, the last type of baptism that we see in Matthew 3.11, uh, where John says, I baptize with water, but he who is coming, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, I think this is another oft misunderstood term and phrase. Uh, it's very often that people will pray that, they will be baptized in, the, in fire. Um, they'll look at that as a good thing, especially Pentecostals. God, rain down your fire on us. Um, that is not a good thing. That's not a prayer that we should be uh, mimicking. Let me read to you from um, Malachi 4.1. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And let's just get a, a broader context for this baptism of fire because uh, John goes into that back in Matthew 3. So after saying that he who's coming is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with, with fire. Um, actually, let me go back. I'm going to read all the way from verse 7 of 3 through verse 12. It says, but when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Now, listen here. He says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He's talking about judgment there. Soon coming judgment, this tree that's about to fall. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire is not good, right? If you're a tree, you don't want to be thrown into the fire. You want to be made into something pretty. Uh, verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with repentance, but he who's coming is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It says that his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, 
and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this has in view the, the great white throne judgment that we see later on in uh, Revelation 20, 19 or 20, 20, I think. Um, and it's talking about how Jesus is going to come and he's going to separate the, the wheat from the chaff, right? You guys familiar with that language from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24? Um, the, the idea is, um, it talks about his, his winnowing fork or his threshing fork. Um, what they would do is they would go out, they would pick up the wheat and the chaff. The chaff is what comes around the wheat. It's worthless and um, you don't want to eat that. They would throw it up in the air and the air would come and it would take the chaff and it would blow it away, all the worthless stuff. And then the wheat that they're able to take and uh, use and eat, it would fall down to the ground. And so Jesus, on the day of judgment, he's going to do that. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the, the sheep from the goats. And the, the chaff is going to be burned up, but the wheat's going to be put into burn into barns. And so this fire is um, a baptism of judgment. That's what John is talking about, that Jesus is going to come in in judgment. He is mightier than I. So that's, again, not a baptism we want to be identified with, not a baptism that we should be praying for. Uh, that is a, a different kind of identification. So just to review this slide, when we hear baptism, we should think of identification, right? The baptism of John, well, even before that, this tradition of the Jews, that was a Gentile saying, I want to be identified with the Jews. They have a, a glorious God who's blessed them. I see that, and I want to be identified with them and their God. John is uh, preaching a baptism of repentance. He's saying, I am gathering all the people together that realize that we're, we're sinners, that we're broken, we're dirty, we need a Messiah. That's what this baptism is identifying people with. Spirit baptism, we are being identified with the Holy Spirit. We are being identified with this new covenant in Christ where we're saying that um, we're, we, are, we are his, right? We are children of God. And baptism of fire, that refers to judgment. Uh, one more baptism before we go back to Jesus' baptism. Uh, talking about the believer's baptism or water baptism. This is the baptism that you and I are most uh, familiar with. We can read about this in Galatians 3. I'll just read those verses for us real quick. Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So that's spirit baptism, right? To be a child of God through faith means you've been baptized in the spirit. For all of you who, are, who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor free, male nor female. Uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So here there is no mention of water whatsoever. This speaks of a spiritual reality that has taken place. So we have been identified with Christ. And we ought not to read water baptism into to every passage. We need to be careful not to do that for sure. All right, so... Uh, water baptism is for those who have been baptized by the Spirit into one body, and they are commanded in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, to, to go and to make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are commanded to be baptized in water. And all that is, is identifying with the Spirit baptism that has already taken place, this spiritual reality that has taken place in their heart. So it's an outward expression of an inward reality. That's what water baptism is. Water baptism doesn't save anybody. It's just identifying with the spirit baptism that has taken place within our hearts 
uh, with the, the Church of Christ. Not, not the organization, the Church of Christ, but Christ's one perfect church, his bride, right? We see many examples of this throughout Scripture, uh, especially in Acts. Think of Acts 8, you have the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, there's a bunch of water right there. What prevents me from jumping in and identifying myself with Christ right now? Or Acts 16, we have the Philippian jailer and his family, and they believed God, they had faith in God, and then they were identified with that faith through water baptism. Any thoughts or questions on any of those baptisms so far? Yes. First time I've seen the connection of fire baptism with judgment. Today is? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's not a, an envious type of baptism. We shouldn't be well, looking for that. Well, it's in context. Yes. So it's like, yeah. Yep. Yes, Joseph. So basically, John's baptism was to get people to focus on um, a change of mind. Yep. Yeah, getting people to focus on their need. That's what he did. He was a forerunner. He was coming to prepare the path. And he's pointing people to Jesus, to Jesus, saying, this is the man that you need. There's the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm, I'm not taking any sin away from you, right? It's a baptism of repentance, not of forgiveness. All right. Good. All right, well, let's look again at um, this slide, this is the same slide we were looking at before, talking about the baptism of Jesus. And now we can, I think, better address this, uh, this quarry that we might have, that at least I have naturally in my mind when I look at this and wonder, well, why didn't John want to baptize Jesus? Why does Jesus even need to be baptized? What does it mean when Jesus is saying that he needs to fulfill all righteousness? How do we make sense of Jesus' baptism if John is baptizing people who are identifying as sinners as a need for a savior, why is Jesus undergoing this type of uh, baptism himself? I think that's a, a pretty natural question. I think those are good questions that we should seek to, to answer because Jesus' baptism is unique. It's not like uh, everybody else who was being baptized by John. It's not like spirit baptism or believer's baptism. Certainly, certainly not like baptism by fire, right? Um, it, here we go. It's been suggested that Jesus' baptism is ritualistic and is identifying with Old Testament priests who were washed, washed for initiation. I can't say this absolutely, but I think it has some credibility to it. Uh, you look back at Numbers 4, and when these priests were age 30, they would be washed for their, their ministry. And as we pointed out at the beginning of this lesson, Jesus' baptism is mentioned by all four of the gospel writers. It seems to be a sort of inauguration uh, for his public ministry. Jesus was a great high priest, right? A sympathetic high priest. Uh, so I think there's a, a lot of credibility there. But what we can say for certain is that uh, Jesus was identifying with humanity as a suffering servant, right? Remember, that's another key point of Mark, that he wants to point out that Jesus is the suffering servant. He came to, to seek and to save the lost, to, to identify with the lost, to die for the lost. And um, Jesus, in citing a need to fulfill all righteousness, uh, everybody else who was participating in John's baptism, they identified as sinners. You can see that back in Mark 1, verse 5. 
It says that, and the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Then it says, confessing their sins. Well, Jesus, when he was baptized, he never confessed his sins, right? That would be detrimental to Christianity, to our worldview, because Jesus was sinless. He didn't uh, partake in that aspect of that baptism. He wasn't uh, confessing his sins. However, he was also uh, clearly identifying with our sins. Um, these sins that he came for, that he took upon himself. And it absolutely was backwards, right? This is why John was hesitant. He said, uh, no, you're the one who's supposed to be baptizing me. I know who you are. You're the Lamb of God. And uh, that was intentional for it to be out of place. That was the purpose for which Jesus came, that um, he was to identify with us and with our sins. He did this at the end of his ministry on the cross, right? He took our sins upon him. And he's doing it here at the beginning of his ministry, identifying with sinful humanity. Uh, we see here in this verse, this is my favorite verse, I think, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, it's that, that double transaction. He takes our sin upon himself and uh, he imparts to us his righteousness. Uh, here's this, oh, oh, wait a second, I see you guys are writing stuff down. Um, but that's the, the unique aspect of the ministry, or the, the baptism of Jesus. That he was not saying that he was sinful, but he was identifying with sinful man, uh, which is, uh, is central to the gospel, right? The, the very fact that we need uh, a a redeemer, a savior, a mediator who is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. Uh, we couldn't have a, a savior without that. All right. Uh, J. Mack says that John's attitude towards Jesus was the polar opposite of his response to the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, when he said, you brew of vipers, get away. Uh, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He refused to baptize them on account of their pride, their duplicity, and impenitence. But when Jesus came, John's reaction was totally different. His reluctance to baptize Jesus stemmed from his realization that Jesus was sinless. If anyone did not need to be baptized, surely it was him. So um, he's in a different category altogether from the scribes and Pharisees. But uh, John, in his humility, realized uh, there was something different, something backwards going on here. But again, that was by design. All right. Um, we see in the, the baptism of Jesus, people will often look to this passage and they'll cite this passage as a kind of proof text against the doctrine of the Trinity. And they'll say, well, remember the baptism of Jesus what was going on there? We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Was God talking to himself there? Was God descending upon himself? And uh, people can get a little bit uh, even jokey and kind of rude. Uh, but in actuality, I think that Jesus is publicly affirmed by the Holy Spirit and the Father. And this is his official inauguration, his official commissioning. And I think that um, there is... In fact, a, a clear distinction in the persons of the Trinity in this passage, which is important. And people will often misunderstand the Trinity and think that 
um, we were saying that there are, are three gods. There are not three gods, there is one God, but we have to make a, a distinction between uh, person and being. There is one being of God, uh, one essence or existence. Uh, usia is the, the theological term talking about the, the stuffness of God, right? This water bottle has being, it exists, it's here, but it has no personhood. Uh, so there are three persons, but one being of God. We have to make that distinction. There we go. Three persons of God, one being of God. Um, and he did, um, Jesus did not become God at his baptism. We have to realize that too. That was a, a heresy that was going around quite a bit in the early church. And even today, you might find some people that say, well, Jesus didn't become God until his baptism. Or some people say until his transfiguration or until the Garden of Gethsemane or while he was on the cross. Um, Jesus was, was always God, right? God incarnate. That's why the other gospel writers, they start with the birth of Christ because that's when God entered the world. Um, we don't want to get the wrong idea and think that Mark skipped over that because he doesn't believe that. But uh, we have to realize that Jesus was always God, right? All right, any thoughts or questions on any of those baptisms, including the baptism of Jesus? You guys seeing the, the difference between how Jesus was identified versus the other people that John baptized? And maybe why John was a little bit hesitant because everybody else that he was baptizing, he was saying, we're a bunch of sinners. We're going to come together. We're going to recognize that. We're going to let the world know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And so I, I can totally relate with John. I can see why he would have done that. I think I would have done the same thing too and said, no, I don't think so. Uh, we're, we're doing something a little bit different here. But Jesus, in a desire to fulfill all righteousness, and uh, you can go back to that idea of uh, being a priest. He needs to be cleansed, fulfilling the, the law in, in the Old Testament and also identifying with humanity and with sin. He wanted to, to do that to identify with us in our need. All right. Well, we definitely don't have time to get into the temptation of Jesus. We'll do that next week and look at um, how he was led by the Holy Spirit. After this, the Holy Spirit himself led Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. So that gets interesting. We'll look at that next week. Andy, I think next week you need to sit closer. You're having a hard time squinting your eyes looking at that screen. Because <laughs> you're blind. I can feel you, man. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I could identify any of you guys without my glasses. So praise God with glasses. All right, let's pray. God, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for baptism, that we have been identified with you. Uh, what a beautiful thing that we were lost in our sins. We were condemned in our trespasses and transgressions and uh, by nature children of wrath, even as a rest. And yet you saw fit to, to take us and to make us into your children, to identify us with the, the almighty God of heaven and earth, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. We are uh, counted as, as your children, as your church, as your bride because of your love and your grace on us. God, I pray that you would help us to, to preach that truth to, to others who are not yet in that position, who are still uh, 
in denial, who have not yet repented. God, help us to grasp this difficult, often misunderstood and miscommunicated doctrine of repentance, that we would uh, have a, a repentant heart ourselves and that we would preach repentance to those who are in need of a Savior and maybe don't realize that just yet. God, we love you. We pray that you'd be high and lifted up for the rest of the service and the rest of this week, that uh, we would set you apart as Lord of our heart. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen.